bonjour and bienvenue to Battle Royale, where we are passing judgment on all of the kings and emperors of France, from Clovis to Napoleon III. Who will be selected as the creme de la creme, and who will be sent to the guillotine? Je m'appelle Ben Clark. And I'm Eliza Summers. And this... Hi. (laughs) No, I was just going to say, I feel proud of myself that I now know my line off by heart. You do. But I never know what to say after the intro. I'm like, and hello. (laughs) I'm just like, blah, blah, blah. Also, you you can't see it because we don't do a video uh, call when we we record. But uh, I always like do weird shoulder movements whenever I do my intro. (laughs) I'm like, bonjour and bienvenue. Like moving my shoulder. I I do a little dance. Lovely. Um, the rhythm helps me remember what to say because I trip over myself. I know you do. Anyway, but uh, hopefully there'll be not so much tripping over this episode. I have double checked that all of my notes are here, which was Yay. an issue last episode. <laughs> you know what happened last episode? It's because I I copied and pasted my notes from oh. a document into my notes. Oh. Um, so it's like a glitch. And... Yeah. By the way, copy and pasted my own notes. Like, yeah, that I not wrote. stole. Like, not, <laughs> I'm not plagiarizing here. Um, but uh, yeah, so they, for some reason, the document just jumbled them up, and uh, that's, that's what happened. happened. I will, I'll never forget one time when I had an assignment due, and some a glitch happened, and all the sentences went on top of each other. So, like five right. hours before this assignment's due, I had to rewrite an entire like two thousand word essay. Oh God. Yeah, yeah I've, I've been in that position. Well, I managed to edit around my fumbling last episode, so that was good. Yeah. Turned out to be very good. I really liked last episode. I think it was really good. I'm very proud of it. Yay. And I think this episode is also going to be good. Yay. Um, we're getting into the proper Middle Ages. And it's very mm-hmm. exciting. Yeah. All right. So this episode, it will be long. <laughs> Always. Um, but in a in a good way. It'll okay. be long and exciting. Because we are lucky enough to have six or seven chroniclers uh, who touch on Robert II's reign. So we've got Richer, who mm-hmm. is now living through events, um, yeah. our old friend Richer, and Dudo as well. <laughs> They're being joined by a bunch of 11th, 12th, 13th century writers. So when you say Dudo, I just think Dodo. Dudo is about to become extinct, <laughs> like the Dodo, because he will die. Yeah, so will that name. <laughs> Yep, and so we'll reshare. So, let's get into Robert II. Yes. What do you remember of Robert from last episode? Wasn't he, uh, played <laughs> the field? Well, we'll get into it. That's he's he's more of a he's more of a serial monogamist, I would say. Oh, okay. The one thing we, we touched on last episode was that he had a messy divorce and that Hugh Capet opposed said oh, yeah. divorce. So, we'll get much further into detail about mm. that. So, Robert... The second was born around 972, shortly after the marriage of his parents, Hugh Capet and Adelaide of Aquitaine. So yep. he was the firstborn of all the children. And through his father, he was descended from, of course, the Robertians, yep. but also the Ottonian imperial family, oh. who were Saxons. And because uh, we remember we had Hedwig of Saxony being Hugh Capet's mom. Oh, uh, yeah. And through his mother, he was descended from the Aquitanian house of Poitou, as well as from Rollo, who was her grandfather mm-hmm. on her mother's side. The Viking Count of Rouen slash chocolate. Yes. Caramel. 
Yeah. I was going to try and not so, say it just to spite you. <laughs> so that means uh, Robert the Second. He's a whole mix. He's 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 got Frankish. He's got Saxon. He's got Goth, and he's got Viking. He's just like all the Germanic peoples Yay. rolled into rolled one. Rolled in one, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Rollowed into one. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Robert uh, appears to have spent much of his early life in Orléans, uh. which is the second city of France. Do you remember where Orléans is? Like roughly on the map. So, south east? It's, it's, directly, it's directly south of Paris. Okay. So if you go, if you go south of Paris, you'll hit the Loire River. Yeah, yeah. And that's where Orléans is. It's oh, okay. on it's on the the upper part of the Loire Valley. So that's where that is. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's really the second city of the royal domain. Okay. Um but Robert is much more of a Orléans inhabitant than he is a Paris inhabitant. Uh not a Parisian. Not a Parisian and Orléanais as he, as they're called. <laughs> so in Orléans, he was crowned as Junior King of the Franks on Christmas Day, 987. Oh, what a lovely Christmas present. I know. And this was only six months after his father became the first king of the Ooh. Capetian dynasty. Where's my royal title on Christmas Day? William the Conqueror was also crowned at Christmas. It's a thing. Yeah, Charlemagne also crowned at Christmas. It's, it's a thing. <laughs> I guess because it's like a big, it's Day. a big uh, sort of ceremony about like, new beginnings and, and birth yeah. and everything. Cheer people up in the middle of winter when they're all starving to death. <laughs> but yeah, so so he was crowned as junior king six months after his father became the king. So Hugh Capet is like thinking ahead. He's like, I'm old. I'm nearly 50, which is old in, in yeah. early medieval terms. And my son, he's nearing adulthood at the age oh. of nine. Oh. So... <laughs> Well, he was somewhere between nine and fourteen. It's very vague. So he's a, yeah, a tween. Um, he was a tween, yes. From nine eighty eight, he's recorded as so. The following year, he's recorded as having accompanied his father in the war against Charles of Lorraine, so the civil Ooh. war for the throne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he did the thing that we've seen a lot of kings do, where he just like sort of apprentices with his father, yeah. trails him on campaigns and that sort of thing. Yeah. While Hugh Capet brought Robert up to be a good general, a certain priest named Gerbert of Auriac uh, <laughs> was his tutor. He ensured that Robert got a thorough intellectual education. Good. We don't want a stupid king. Yeah. So unlike his father, uh, he could read and write very well. Yay! And he could engage in more complex discussions about religion and philosophy. Yay! So he was, he was a smart cookie. Yay. So now it's time to get into Robert's marriages. Yes. Lots. Marriages plural. Yay. How many? Um, so ho- hold on to your cafe. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what was that laugh? That was, that was like a, na- that was like the nanny's laugh. Ha ha ha. Oh, I love the nanny. That's such mm. a good show. Some of these kings could use a nanny, but anyway. So- they could use <laughs> so- Fran Fine. That's for sure. So Hugh Capet, he's looking for a bride for his son, Robert II, who's, you know, getting getting up there in years. He's a tween already. Oh, God, that's um, so old. How's he not married already? God damn it. <laughs> so he goes to Flanders, Hugh Capet, uh, where the Count Arnulf II is a child, and mm-hmm. his uh, his mother, Rosala of Italy, oh my God, is love a very powerful... Yes, she's a very powerful widow. She's also called Susanna in a lot of sources. Oh, I like Rosala better. 
Well, we're using Rosala because that's what's in my notes. Um, <laughs> I like um, that one. Yeah, Rosala. She was. Um, she belongs to the House of Ivrea. And we're going to start to hear a lot more from the House of Ivrea from now on. I really like that name too. Yeah. They, they're based in like roughly uh, Northern Italy, Southern Lotharingia, kind of modern Switzerland-ish. Oh, okay. That sort of area. That oh, sort yeah. of Alps area. Um, and they're very much on par with the Welfs in terms of all of the pies they managed to get their fingers in uh, across Europe. Like they're marrying into everyone. Yeah. And they this eventually leads to them becoming... Kings of Spain, or oh. kings of different Spanish kingdoms. Yeah. The house that Isabella and Ferdinand belong to is a branch of the house of Israel, oh. I believe. I have a coin. It's like the Welsh. They're just this big dynasty that, like, turns into other dynasties over time. Cool. And, like, the Capetians. The Capetians does that, too. Yeah. So, Rosala, she's got these connections in the south. She's also basically the ruler of Flanders, the regent for her son. Yeah. So, she's a catch. Damn, Yeah. Yeah. However, she was in her early 30s. Oh. So we have another sort of cougar marriage here. (laughs) And as we've seen, these can go one of two ways. So yeah, she's not old by like our standards, but- Yeah. To them, she's ancient. She would have seemed old at least to Robert. Yeah, he's like a tween. He's like 12. So (laughs) yeah, it's it's not good from that perspective. Oh, by the way, most of this biography section is going to be taken up by Robert's marriages. Good. I love uh, the marriages stories. That's, it's just the most interesting part of his reign, um, <laughs> in my opinion. But we will get into further detail about how he governed and what he was like when we passed judgment on when him. When he wasn't yeah, getting anyway. married. <laughs> yes. But yeah, back to Queen Rosala. Um, uh, to, to paraphrase Queen's podcast, babies don't need wives. Uh, So I think it's fair to say that Robert, like countless girls throughout history, was incapable of consenting to this marriage because he was 15 at the very oldest. However, unlike all of the poor women who would have had to like put up with it, Robert as a junior king ended up in a powerful position to challenge his father's decision of who he should marry. Yeah. So Robert and Rosala... They'd been married in 988, so shortly after he was crowned junior king. But yeah. within four years, they had separated. <laughs> there were no children, obviously. Yeah. And from this point, Robert began to campaign for an annulment mm-hmm. from the woman he dubbed the old Italian widow. <laughs> <laughs> so he wasn't very nice to her. Yeah. She was probably like this child. Oh, get re- get ready for what she does. Oh um, but Robert, you know, he's lawyering up... Uh, He's yeah. reached his mid to late teens and like he's like he's, I want he's now like age. God. This is this is as much about him emancipating himself from his father as it is about him choosing who to marry. Yeah. It's it's very much I'm a grown up now, I make my own decisions, sort of. I can do what I want, Dad. God. I'm sure we can all relate to that. Yeah. Even if we haven't been forced into an arranged marriage. So <laughs> so Rosala was not going to take all this lying down. Yeah. She doesn't seem to have been particularly into Robert, but she, she was, was into like, the idea of being queen. Yeah, who wouldn't be? Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, she was going to fight this divorce. And Good. when you're trying to split up, like, property in a divorce. It and part of that property includes, like, castles, knights, God. large stretches of French countryside. That's going to get messy. Yes, things get messy quite quickly. But part of Rosala's property before the separation had been the castle of Montreuil 
outside Paris. Okay. But Robert took him for for himself during Ugh. the divorce. He's like, I like it. I want it. So according to Risha, while Robert was off west, uh, settling one of the 10,000 disputes between Bois and Anjou, uh, <laughs> which was one of his jobs as junior king, Rosala went and built a second castle right next to Montreuil. Oh, <laughs> I love that. That is like petty. It gets petty, better. It gets better. Oh my God. Keep going. Um, she used this castle to block trade coming down the Seine to Montreux. Oh, so they said like, cut <laughs> off. Oh my God. I love yeah. that. That is like petty next level and that's the best thing. Oh, I it's love that. amazing. Oh, I'm loving her. She's clearly very powerful. She has a lot of influence so she, and she Isn't has a lot of money. So she's able to just- castle or how long he was away for. She employed good, fast workers. I mean, castles in this period think like- wooden walls oh like chateau the, the keep is probably the only stone part of it and the keep's not huge okay. at this time we're still in the early days of castles so they they are like kind of s- things that you can whip whip up quite quickly oh okay cool yeah think just more like a- forts okay i'm just gonna casually whip up a castle okay guys yeah like a little fort that you why can can't someone in. do That's that for a, me a i don't know eliza so there. that's how i know a guy will really love me is when he just Buys me a fort or a castle. Donate to Patreon now so that Eliza can whip up a castle. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Okay, so there there was obviously a lot of opposition to the divorce. And of course, the king himself was one of the people yes. who um, objected. So it wasn't going to happen anytime soon. Did it get dragged on for a long time? Um. Well, Hugh Cafe is going to die soon. So uh, not too okay. long. But yeah, things were kind of kept in limbo because it's still early in Hugh Cafe's reign and we have like civil wars going on left and right. Yeah. It's, everything's messy. Um, so while Hugh Cafe is handling the war with Charles of Lorraine in the east, yep. Robert is mostly focused on Anjou and Blois in the west. Mm-hmm. And as we said, they're always at each other's throats. They hate each other. Yeah. And in the course of these conflicts, Robert encountered Bertha of Burgundy. She is a member of the House of Wealth, our old of friend. Of course. She was the 30-something-year-old widow of Odo I of Blois. Yeah. So he encounters a different widow. <laughs> Does he fall in love with this, this time widow, widow, though? This time the Countess of Blois. So um, when her husband died in March 996, in the middle of this war with uh, Faulknera of Anjou, which we actually mention in our Patreon episode, um, Bertha threw herself and her teenage son, Odo II, at the feet of Junior King Robert. Yeah, and was like, spare me! Yeah, well, she beseeched him to become her, quote, protector and defender. And I'm sure I don't have to tell you what happens next. Yeah. <laughs> so, the Archbishop of- well, by Baumchikawawa, we of course mean ma- marriage. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Not the other stuff. They held hands. Yay! <laughs> That's all they did. The Archbishop of Tours married them together in nine ninety six. It's complicated. <laughs> it's very complicated. Let's just say some priests said he was divorced, and some priests said he wasn't. Okay. One of those priests being the Pope. <laughs> oh, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, but the Archbishop of Tours—he's all for this marriage because uh, like, he yeah. is loyal to the the Blois faction. At court. Okay. So he gets them married in 996, whilst Hugh Capet 
uh, who's sort of shaking his fist at them. Um, that just makes me think of like Scooby Doo when the villain gets caught. He's like, "You can." That's like yeah, the only thing you're he's but yeah, Hugh Capet would have been shaking his fist from his deathbed because he was about to die. Oh, yeah. So. Sucks. So, um, there's a few problems with this marriage, apart from the fact that uh, we just mentioned, like, he was kind of already still married. Uh, <laughs> is that that um, she was old and couldn't have kids or something? Well, this is the thing. Robert's entire problem with Rosala had been that she was too old. Yeah. Like, that was his whole issue. But now he was marrying a woman who was only a few years younger. Result at this point is nearly 40. She um, must looked really young to him. Also, another problem with this marriage, Bertha's mother yeah. um, was Matilda, daughter of Louis IV of France and Gerberga of Saxony. So Bertha's, uh, a, Bertha's a half Carolingian. Um, and um, Robert II's grandmother, if you remember, is Hedwig of Saxony, yeah. Gerberga's sister. So that makes Robert and Bertha second cousins. Oh, and we've seen this not be an issue in the yeah, past. Second cousin's marriage. This time but it it's is. becoming an issue now. Yeah. So by marrying, they are breaking a law against consanguinity. Okay. Which is a fancy term that just means the convergence of blood. Oh. Uh, you know, incest. Don't f your elbows. <laughs> yes. Yes. Don't uh, hold hands with your relatives. The church is just trying to crack down on this in this period. And, yeah. and we'll see. This is a trend that's going to develop in the next few episodes. That the church is gaining more authority yeah. over the world, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, and part of this is regulating marriages, whether that be the idea that you can't marry your cousin or the idea that you can't uh, abduct people <laughs> or the idea <laughs> that you can't just... Nilly. Yeah, you can't just throw off a wife that you've made a pledge to. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, while they were married by an archbishop, it's messy. Yeah. So, meanwhile, Hugh Capet is dead oh. in October 996, and Robert has gone from junior king to <laughs> the king. Woo! How old is he? Like, what, 20? Um, he is in his mid to late 20s at this oh. point. Because Hugh Capet, like, he became king when he was old, but then he lived another, like, 10 years. So, yeah. he did better than people thought he would, basically. <laughs> But yeah, and, and also, bear in mind, his entire teen years, he's been apprenticing as king. So, yeah, he... Uh, Robert hits the ground running. He's very effective very early as king. And we'll get into this in, okay. in the judgment rounds. But we'll be right back after this. The commander said, don't worry, I don't have the authority to kill you today. Which was positive for that day anyway. In 1993, Chris Moon was captured by the Khmer Rouge while clearing landmines in Cambodia. With survival probability low, Chris was brought in front of the boss. He was just given a local nickname, Mr. Clever. Hi, I'm Steve Windus, host of the Batting the Breeze podcast. I'd love you to check out how Chris survived, along with some other great human stories at battingthebreeze.com. Hopefully see you there. Can he keep up that memento? Momentum, not memento. <laughs> we'll see, but he improves over time, actually. Ooh, it's quite good. That's nice. Um, but we'll, we'll get into it. Okay. Um, so one of the first things that uh, Robert does as king is use his new level of authority to have his marriage to Rosala annulled, <laughs> at least in the eyes of his local magnates. Oh, okay. Um, but Rosala still has powerful friends. Mm-hmm. Bertha has many enemies. 
Oh. Robert stood by his new woman for several years. Oh. Uh, and so Pope Gregory V, uh, with the support of Emperor Otto III, yeah. uh, pronounced anathema upon them. Meaning? He excommunicated not only Robert and Bertha, but all of the bishops who had supported their unlawful Oh, union. damn. Mass yeah. excommunication. This is big. This is... Oh, we haven't had an excommunicated king in a while. No, we haven't had an excommunicated king ever. I thought we did. Hugh the Great got excommunicated, but he was not king. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, Robert- Oh, he gets the first title Taking after his grandfather, Hugh the Great, and he's getting excommunicated. Woo! Yeah, so now Robert is uh, in crisis mode because, you know, that's bad. If you excommunicate the king, you're kind of excommunicating the entire kingdom. Yeah, people aren't going to be <laughs> so, happy. People aren't happy. So, um, a, a couple years later, in 999... Oh, it lasted a couple years being excommunicated. Okay. Well, it, it probably took a couple years for the order to actually get to France, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> um, but the uh, Pope Gregory dies, and Robert's former tutor, Gerbert, becomes oh. Pope Sylvester II. Ah, yeah, yeah. 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 Remember, he, like, left for Germany, and then before you know it, he's Pope. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and does he like unexcommunicate him? Well, it's 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 complicated as yeah. usual. Okay. Uh, Sylvester continued the papal policy of opposition to the marriage. Oh, however, uh, in his in uh, the years of his papacy, he sought reconciliation more than you know just punishing excommunication. Robert. He's approaching him with the carrot rather than the stick. Basically. Yeah. You know, he was Robert's tutor. He he knows how to convince him to do yeah, things. Yeah, he knows basically. Robert. Yeah, he knows Robert. So, yeah, he uh, he approaches him with kindness and sympathy. Uh, Robert seemed to react much better uh, yeah. to this. To that and, um Yeah. So, Pope Sylvester II convinced Robert to do penance and to renounce Bertha. Oh. Do they have any kids at this point? No. They oh. have no kids. Oh. So, he renounces her around the year 1000. Yeah. And quickly gets married to someone else. Yes. Well, after this, he does marry four babies. Yeah, because he's yes. getting a bit older. He's getting a bit older. He's also the only child. True. I mean, so or the only like son the in his family. Year. He needs to make them babies. He, yeah, so, <laughs> and fast. However, we we will see him go back to Bertha at some point. Oh, Bertha's gone, but she's not gone. Gone. Oh. <laughs> she's got like a secret back door. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. But yeah, taking a bit of a break from the marriage problems, uh, it's time to talk about the turn of the millennium. Yay! Party! So this will be a b- brief side tangent. So what do you think people might have thought about the approach of the year 1000? Something bad is going to happen or something good is going to happen? Well, yes to both. What is like a big event that is both bad and good, depending on who you are? An eclipse? Uh, more, bigger. A meteorite? It's a thousand years after Jesus oh. was born. A sacrifice? What do you think people think is going to happen a thousand years oh, later? Oh, Jesus will come alive again. And? Sin coming of Christ. And? What happens when Christ comes again? Hell? The battle of war? <laughs> battle- what happens to the world? Uh, Agamemnon? <laughs> what ha- what happens to the world? But you went to Catholic school. What happens to the world when Jesus comes back? Limbo's gone. No, what? The- 
The apocalypse, Eliza. The apocalypse. Yeah, Agamemnon. <laughs> Who's Agamemnon? It's not a word for apocalypse, mate. Agamemnon was the king of ancient Greece. Yeah. No, Armageddon. Oh, that's it. That's what I'm thinking of. <laughs> Agamemnon, like, why Armageddon, she brought up Agamemnon? <laughs> it, they both begin with A. When you said Agamemnon, that threw me for a loop. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't remember the word. I just remember to start of A. So the first thing popped my head, I said. As I usual. love when I use the Socratic method on this podcast because it leads to the weirdest uh, <laughs> things coming out of Eliza's mouth. <laughs> anyway, so, um, yes, there were fears that there would be an apocalypse on the millennium. Yeah. Either, either year 1000 or the year 1033, which would have been the anniversary of the resurrection. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah, death and resurrection, yeah. However, ideas of there being some kind of mass hysteria in this period have largely been sort of cooked up and exaggerated by later, later. writers in, uh, the, okay. in the Renaissance. Of course. Renaissance writers were very into condemning the Middle Ages as a time of, like, rabid barbarians. It's just a fun pastime thing to do. Yeah, well, they coined the term Dark Ages. They were talking about how everyone, like, thought the world was going to end every five years, and, like, everyone was just running around naked. Oh, so it's like a tw- uh, 2012. Yeah. With the Mayan yeah. calendar. Like that, only if everyone took it seriously. Oh. But in reality, it was probably more like how te- 2012 was in reality, where it was just a few crazy people. Most people just lived their lives. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Meh. Yeah. We actually get very little mention of apocalypticism or... um eschatology, as it's called, from the chroniclers at the time. Okay. Which is not to say that there were no fears of it happening, but- It wasn't as big as people made out to be I mean, the chroniclers were mostly in the church, and the church and, like, other ruling authorities- They're downplaying. Yeah. It was not in their best interest to provoke mass hysteria. Like, it's hard to continue telling a peasant what to do when you've just told them the entire world is about to end. Yeah. They're going to be like, well, for (laughs) real. Not that peasants were the target audience of Chronicles because they couldn't read, but you know, you know know what I'm saying. Yeah. It was not the message. The message was the world's going to continue. It ain't the second coming. (laughs) So keep paying your taxes. Yeah. But back to the marital troubles. Now that we've had that brief sidebar about the millennium, we'll get back to it. Maybe. Let's get back to the marital troubles. Yeah. Because they're more fun. Yeah. Um, So Robert and Bertha. They yeah. were forced to annul their marriage, as we know. Star-crossed lovers, separated. They were threatened with another excommunication in the uh, year uh, Oh, double excommunication. Um, yeah. So they, they, they were, they'd sort of said that they'd separate, and then they got, got back together, but then they had to separate again. Uh, Very messy. Yeah. It's that ex that you, that you just can't quit. Um, uh, however, he still refused to return to Rosala. Yeah. He's like, I need babies, I need a young wife. So yeah. Rosala actually conveniently dies two years later in 1003, um, and Robert decides uh, with a heavy sigh uh, that he has to find a fresh young wife who can actually give him some airs. Yeah. Because that clock, it's ticking. Yeah. Uh, Need it pronto. The nursery is gathering dust. So Robert uh, basically just pretended that that entire situation never happened. Uh, <laughs> he he swiftly moves on to the 15-year-old Constance of Arles. Okay. How old is he at this point? 30s? He was about 30 at this point, yeah. Mm. Mm. Uh, not as so bad as Const- my grandparents' age difference. Yeah, true. But I assume your grandmother didn't marry your grandfather when she was 15. Yeah. I think I she was 21. Much better. 
Yeah. Okay, so um, Constance was the daughter of Count William I of Provence and none other than our old friend Adelaide Blanche of Anjou. She was the one who had the disastrous marriage with the young Louis V. Yeah. You know, speaking of older people marrying much younger people, you remember they, like, they hated each other yeah. so much they had yeah. separate residences, even yeah. when they were on the same tour. Yeah. yeah. They're like, I don't even want to see you or breathe in the same air yeah. as you. So, like, Adelaide Blanche, after Louis dies, goes on to marry the Count of Provence and have another child. Mm. Who was Constance. So, while the young and fertile Constance does finally uh, start to bring some royal children uh, in and crank up that V on throne score, she also proves difficult in her own way. <laughs> so, uh, Bertha, yeah. ex-wife Bertha, is backed by the Blois faction because yeah. she is the matriarch of the House of Blois. Yeah. Being, you know, the mother of the Count. And Constance, meanwhile is aligned with the Anjou faction because uh. she is half Angevin. Yeah. So now we've got these two queens who are Enemies. emblematic of the big uh, feud between the nobles that's happening. Yeah. In addition to that, Constance is also a foreigner. Oh. And she's bringing a lot of, like, silly southern cons- uh, customs into the French Oh, court. how dare she? I know. Because remember, in this period, Provence was a different country. True. What were the customs? Do you know any customs she brought in? Oh, bright colours in their clothing. <gasps> How I dare know. she? Um, more tighter fit, especially for Ooh. the men. Because she brought, like, her whole... She brought a bunch of courtiers with her, like, a whole retinue. Yeah. And a bunch of cousins she brought with her. Put those and, in the luggage. you know, they probably, you know, played music really loud at 3am. Uh, uh, one of those neighbours that you're like, oh, God. They talked loudly and gesticulated way too much, kept knocking things over. Had a fun um, time. Basically, they're, they're, they're a lot more Italian than they okay. are Northern French. Yeah. Um, they're much closer to that sort of culture. Yeah. And they're just too much for these, like, cranky Northern folk who they're used to everyone looking grey and glum. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Constance, she wasn't just a silly, frivolous girl, though. She was also yeah. ruthless. Ooh. She was a savage. Yeah. And she and her cousin and ally, Folk Nera, Folk the uh, Black yeah. of Anjou, uh, they were double trouble. Ooh. So in 1007, one of the king's advisors called Hugh of Beauvais was yes. trying to convince him to divorce her. Oh. He was like, she's bad news. Just try to get back with Bertha. And he was promptly assassinated by 12 knights. <laughs> and guess what crest these knights were wearing? Oh, I have no idea. They wore the six lions of Anjou. What? Someone yeah. must just be pretending to be there, and there's no way she could have done it. Robert was horrified by this turn of events, and it actually it actually helped convince him to to get back with Bertha. <laughs> um, so in 1009, he uh, took the drastic step of going to Rome, Ooh. where he sort of rendezvous with Bertha. Ooh. She goes separately and sort of meets him there. Oh damn! The Pope is now a new guy called Sergius the <laughs> Fourth, and. They go to him, uh, asking him to legitimise their marriage and annul the union with the wicked Constance. But the Pope was like, um, no. No, you'll marry. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> yeah, bugger off. He was like, look, she might be a bitch, but she's your lawful wife. <laughs> so stick it out. Stick with the mother of your children. 
Yeah. And um, apparently a saint also appeared to Robert II. Um, <laughs> and was like, don't get divorced. Yeah, pretty much echoing the Pope's words. Do you know which saint? Oh, uh, which was... It was a really random saint. Oh, okay. I can't for life me... I haven't written down can't like for life me. Like the saint of codfish. The saint of not getting divorced. Oh, what a dull one. And codfish. So he turns to Bertha, he's like, sorry, babes. The codfish said... So yeah, he abandons her. Once again. And she dies a few months later. Oh. In January 1010. Oh. Yeah. She died of a broken heart. Yeah, Bertha died of a broken heart. Constance, meanwhile... Is um is mad and she continues to be mad for the rest yeah. of Robert's reign. Um, <laughs> Who wouldn't be mad at a husband like that? Yeah, she actually pulls a Rosala uh, by leaving the royal palace in Paris and Ooh. building just as big and lavish a palace nearby at yes. Etomp. Oh, I love <laughs> so, this palace revenge. Love- it's like the best thing. <laughs> the, re- the best revenge is like build I'm gonna go build. A better palace right next to your palace. I know, it's just like, oh, I love that. So you can see it from the window, how good it is. She also, uh, Constance, also cha- channels this grudge into her sons. Okay. Uh, she, uh, she sort of uh, stokes a rebellious spirit among them. To what, hate their father? Yes. Um, so her eldest child is called Hugh Magnus. Okay. Which just means Hugh the Great in Latin, but they're going to call him Hugh Magnus. because Yeah. You know, Confusing. Distinguishing. Otherwise. Yeah. So he was crowned junior king in 1017. So he's going to be the next king. And she spends a few years sort of stoking his ego. Yeah. Uh, like, oh, you'll be great. Probably saying some nasty things about his father as well. You'll uh, be great, unlike your father. And and oopsie daisies, now he's rebelling and trying to overthrow his father. Oh, who would have thought? How did that happen? Constance actually, she does go down in history as opposing the rebellion, but... You have to wonder. Yeah. <laughs> she later supports a rebellion against Robert. So it's like, mm. Mm. she's doing something behind the scenes here, I think. The, what, the scorned woman? Oh, she, uh, get ready because she is portrayed really nastily in the oh. sources. We'll get more into that in Ooh La La. But, oh. but right now, important stuff to know. Uh, the re- this rebellion happens in 1025. It's put down pretty swiftly, and uh, Hugh Magnus is reconciled with his father. Yeah. But it all comes to nothing when he falls ill and dies later that year. Hugh or Robert? Hugh Magnus. Yeah, the son. The heir to the throne has died. Robert and Constance uh, are both distraught. Yeah. Do they have other sons? They have more sons. Oh, few. They do have more sons. But you bet they're going to fight over who should be the heir. Yeah. What are the options? So Robert says, look, let's stick to primogeniture. Yeah. We know it works. The eldest gets everything. So it must be Henry. Okay. The next oldest son. Yeah. Meanwhile, Constance. Who she want? She's very anti like rules and structures. Yeah. So she's free spirit. She takes the chaotic choice. <laughs> <laughs> she's all chaotic good. She's definitely not chaotic good. Chaotic Chaotic evil. neutral at best. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, she asserts that Henry is a weakling and an idiot. And God, say that about <laughs> your own son. She favours the younger son, Robert Jr. Oh. Robert Sr. promises that Robert Jr. will get Burgundy. Okay. By the way, Robert II has conquered Burgundy in the meantime. We'll Woo! get to that in Guard. But King Robert is not super keen on giving him Burgundy yet. Yeah. So he waits a bit. bit older. And Robert Jr. gets a bit impatient. Yeah. And... 
Rebels. Rebels. He attacks the royal castles of Burgundy, and um, he convinces his elder brother Henry to also rebel, uh, because Henry uh, hasn't received his junior kingship yet. Uh, So, (laughs) they're both mad at not getting power quick enough. Yeah. And then Robert is just basically like, okay, okay, have your bloody land, and he- he makes Henry the junior king, and he, he makes Robert the Duke of Burgundy. He's like, there, you happy? No, leave me alone. Leave me alone. And then he proceeds to die uh, a couple oh. years later. <laughs> Constance, she was supposedly against the last rebellion. She was definitely all for this rebellion. Mm. Um, at least Robert's rebellion. Yeah. Not so much Henry's rebellion. It's complicated. Yeah. We'll get into it next episode. But according to the sources, she's just becoming this like cranky and bitter lady woman as she ages yeah bit bit misogynistic is the portrayals of constance and we'll get more into that but yeah probably exhausted by all of this family drama robert ii of france finally dies on the 20th of july 1031 around the age of 60 oh he lives yeah so he lived quite a while and um Though much younger, Constance had been very ill, both mentally and physically, since the death of Hugh Magnus. Yeah. So, she actually died either the following year or a few years later in her mid-40s. Oh, wow. Young. Yeah. So, that is Robert's reign, or at least his marital problems, uh, which take (laughs) up much of his reign. But we will get into much further detail about other events as we rate him. Let's get into Enchanté. Are you ready? Okay. Enchanté. I have sent you the mm. first image. Okay. The portrait of Robert II by Marie-Joseph Blondel, which <laughs> is an excellent name. I think it's a new artist. Look at his hair. It's that bob. Look at the hair. It's a slightly different bob. It's more yeah. It's more voluminous. Yeah, it is. It's more of like a 60s, early 70s Beatles bob. haircut. Yeah, yeah, like bob, bob. cut. Yeah. I was thinking that. And then he's got, what, the st- <coughs> pinecone scepter? The pinecone one. He does have a pinecone scepter. And then he's got the the blue robe and the white outfit. And his hands mm-hmm. just randomly up there being like, hey. It's like, I was meant to hold the orb, but I dropped it. <laughs> it's a very... It's a very sort of Jesus-y pose. Yeah, but don't you think it looks like he was like, oh, I was meant to be holding this orb. Whoops. Okay, I can't move. So... And there. Yeah. Well, he looks like he's about to take off his cloak. Mm. He's got his, he's got his um, hand on the on the string. Oh yeah, he does. That holds the cloak. So maybe he's like about to take it off. Go relaxed. Go see Bertha. Um, oh. <laughs> for a little cheeky cheeky rendezvous. Oh. Mm, scandal. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, that is Robert, his mm-hmm. portrait. He looks very, uh, Jesus. I do like his eyes. He, his eyes are very, like, wistful. Yeah, they are. They're, like, thinking, mm-hmm. you know. It's like, huh. Oh. Some lovely, some lovely little details on this, on this picture. Yeah, there is. His belt has, his belt has little fleur-de-lis on it. Oh, yeah. Lots of little no, details like that. like little crown. Yeah, I, it's pretty basic compared to the crowns we've had recently. Yeah. Anyway, so next picture. Hang on. Yes. Um, and these will all be on the WordPress as usual. Uh, so next we've got a medieval depiction of him. Uh, I believe um, he's uh, 
as a young king, he's retaking the castle of Melin for his father. Again, it got some little arches in the front going, pew, shooting. Yeah, this is during, like, the Civil War with Odo Blois. I love it. Um, Yeah. Oh, that's got these cool. got this really tiny castle and these really huge men. <laughs> yeah, got the horse. Well, that's because it's got in the, the it's in the, the foreground. Yes, but it it, it does it, it. The perspective is weird because it is medieval. True. Um, this is I believe fourteenth century. They tried. Yeah, it's fourteenth century. So it was it, this was three hundred years death, later. But you know. Yeah. Um. So we've got that one. That's a that's a nice medieval one. Yeah. Shows him a bit baffling. We'll get into how. How battle he was. Armoured horse. Now I've got probably the most famous depiction okay. of Robert II. Okay, let's see. Uh, this is him and Bertha reacting to their excommunication. I am so not getting uh, French vibes. <laughs> it's an 1875 painting by Jean-Paul Laurent, which is in the Musée d'Orsay. And it's of him and his true love, Bertha, reacting okay. to is their that, excommunication. What's the thing on the floor is that the missive so just so um the white <coughs> thing that looks like a cigarette that is a that is a candle oh um maybe that is the that is a candle that is used to represent the uh the pope's authority oh and it's yes. fallen out and it's all i i honestly can't remember what it's called but it's been like uh it's like you don't get this candle down. on anymore Ka-chow. Basically, and the uh, the clergy who have just delivered yeah, the excommunication leaving. are leaving the the room. <laughs> yeah. It's a very interesting. Uh, mm. And they're depiction. just like it's those not really... two by themselves, just like it's it's interesting that it's not it's not depicting the moment where they get excommunicated. It's depicting their reaction yeah. after it's just happened. Yeah, like. In but yeah, we shock. we have this gorgeous uh, hall, which is actually. Yeah. Um, you you said it didn't look very French. Yeah, I'm thinking uh, more Spanish. Well, yeah, um, it, it's it's got this sort of Romanesque arch, which is definitely yeah. accurate to how what the architecture looked like in the period. Um, Just reminds yeah, me. It does look a bit Spanish. You are it right. It reminds yeah. me a bit of what some of the castles we went to in Spain. <clears throat> mm. um, well, there's definitely there, there's definitely some. Uh, artistic influence coming yeah. in from the Arab world at this time because yeah. the Arab world at this time is the center of learning. Yeah. Really, it's the it's still the um, the golden age of Islam. So yeah, yeah. Hmm. Anyway, so that's that's the most famous depiction of Robert. Mm. I also have a. It's statue. interesting how they did her in white too. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a rather sympathetic portrayal of yeah. Bertha, I think. They're not doing it like, you know, as though she's like this, you know, sleeve, like, you know, woman who seduced him. Yeah. Although I believe in some traditions, widows wear white. Uh, um, I true. might be wrong. No, I think that's true. Uh, yeah. You used to wear white for death. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so next, last uh, last depiction, I've got a statue, which is in the Chateau de Versailles. Yay, I and like a statue. it is of Robert, looking very, looking a very typical uh, yeah. medieval king. Yeah, he is. What's he rest? Is his, cra- his crown's not on his head. His crown is on a cushion and next his hand is resting on it. Yeah. No, that's yeah. a different, like, usually it's, and so you sing, like, on the head. Hmm. Huh. 
Yeah, well, in um, in 18th and 19th century portraits, there was often, like, a crown on a pillar beside yeah. the monarch rather than on their head. That crown heavy. Because um, I think uh, wearing crowns on the head was not as fashionable in that period. Yeah. Um, but it was still important to have the crown. Yeah. <laughs> to pick the- In your possession. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like, the queen doesn't go around wearing a crown, right? Except yeah. on, um, yeah, she she wears it for, like, 20 minutes when she's in parliament and then the rest yeah. of the year, no. Well, she, it's really uh, heavy and it hurts it's her really neck. It's really heavy, yeah. She even said oh, that, that it hurts her neck. Yeah. So, uh, that is, uh, that, those are the those are the images that I have for Robert. I have a, f- a bit more information for the Enchanté round. So, yeah. his epithet, he has an epithet. Oh, yeah. Um. He has two epithets, actually. Ooh, double. He is known as Robert le Pieux. Meaning? Robert the Pious. Oh. Uh, he is also known as Robert le Sage, which means Robert the Wise. Hmm. Let's go for the wise one. We've already had some pious, so. We've already had a oh, we already had pious and he was insufferable. Um, yeah. <laughs> sorry, Rutger. Uh, <laughs> so let's go for uh, wise. So, yeah, but like Louis the Pious before him, he had a reputation for being highly educated and a conscientious king. Yeah. Um, pious in, in this context meaning more like dutiful yeah. than holier than thou, as we've discussed before. Um, but yeah, he had his fair share of drama, mm-hmm. uh, but he was very learned about science, art, philosophy. Um, he, at the same time, he remained this sort of warlike paragon of manliness mm. um, so he's he's got it all he's got the brains and the brawn um, and this is also reflected in his appearance uh, which we get from the chronicler Elgod of Fleury Ooh, um, Elgod was uh, his chaplain so he knew him personally oh cool um, although he was directly employed by the king so yeah. you can understand that there would have been some embellishments happening. Yeah. Yeah. But the fact that he's so close to the king, or at least he says he's really close to the king, it might be one of those instances where you're like, oh, I know him really well. He's yeah. my best friend. It's, it's- but it's like, <laughs> oh, it's like this cousin of a person of a friend of a co-worker. <laughs> but he was the chaplain in the king's household. So he did personally know the king. That is definite. Um, so yeah, he, uh, Elgard, uh describes him as pretty much a beast. Um, so he's tall and muscly. Um, but with a, quote, fair complexion. Oh, okay. So he's this big brawny bloke, but he's, he's, you know, there's some, there's some daintiness about him. Um, <laughs> a teddy bear. And, uh, yeah, he's a teddy bear. Um, he, uh, this is a pretty outstanding physical description. Yeah. Obviously there's a conflict of interest here, but, um, that's beside the point to me because the yeah. point of Enchanté is not how the king looked, but how oh, he is perceived uh, over time. Yeah. Okay. And this is a pretty good perception. It is. Mm. But this description to me is very different from the portrait. Mm. Yeah. I don't get the I don't get those this, muscles like, giant, I want. Giant guy. Yeah, where are those manly, manly muscles? They're leaning more into the, the piety angle than the uh, beast angle. Damn, I want those <laughs> the muscles. Sex, the sexy beast angle. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, we have not had, like, a, a, a muscly warrior portrait yet. No, a muscly and, warrior. And 
spoiler alert, we're not going to get one ever. Uh, So, yeah, so... But, you know, we'll still have... We will have some battle paintings happening, so... And we got one with Robert in the medieval painting, so... (gasps) Yeah, true. Interestingly, however, Elgod does um, specify that Robert has very small feet. (laughs) (laughs) He even suggests that he might have had... Some kind of deformity, like, have been club-footed or something. So, and apparently this was visible when he was on horseback. That's interesting. Hmm. But yeah, like his father, Robert was very intent on making himself look good. Yeah. uh, Not just through words, but also through deeds. Yeah. Uh, So he was heavily involved in charity work, endowments for the church. Good. Patronizing the arts, and even performing a certain miracle. Ooh. A miracle. I know. It's, it, this miracle becomes associated with every king of France after him. Oh, every king of France after him is is supposed to have this magical power. Damn. And this is the power to cure scrofula. What the f***'s that? <laughs> scrofula is also known as the king's evil. Um, it is a disease that modern doctors have identified with lymphadenitis. Which is not something you see a lot uh, nowadays. It's it's kind. Of, ugh, I hesitate to ask you to Google it because the uh, images are rather gruesome. Oh, I um, want to Google it now. But you basically get these like lymph nodes. What's on it called? Your on your throatal area. It's called scrofula. How do you spell that? S C R O F U L A. How it sounds, basically. Just want to make sure. Oh, they're not that bad. <laughs> oh, the one I saw looked really bad. Oh, they're fine. They're just in lumps. Yeah, little lumps on on the. They look a bit like um. It looks a bit like leprosy, to be honest. Mm. But it's not. It's different. Some well, of them it's are like just lumps, but some of them are like lumpy infected. It's basically like a bacterial sores. thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, our friend, uh, David at the Siècle podcast, uh, which covers the last few Kings of France has a great episode on scrofula and like the history of the Kings curing it. So, Hmm. yeah. So is it curing it just for them or for everyone? No, no. For people who come up, people will come up to the King being like, like, I have the King's evil. And they'll be like, oh, I'll kill you. It was more a thing poor people got because- So no one came you know. up to the king because the poor really couldn't access the king that easily. Well, that's the thing. It's like the, the king would go out and give arms and that sort of thing. The, the king did have some True. interaction with the poor. You know, in the way that, like, celebrities nowadays will go out and, you know, greet people on the red carpet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's that situation. Only it's more like an arms giving thing than a signing yeah. uh, uh, autographs thing. <laughs> True. Uh, so that's Enchanté. Okay. I thought scrofula would be good to mention here rather than Bolivu because it is part of the iconography of yeah. kingship that gets added on during Robert's True. reign and exists throughout. Similar to what we saw last time with Hugh Capet having like the holy oil. Yeah. And then that becoming a thing and then being crowned at Rams, that being a thing that carries through throughout the rest of the kings through history. Yeah. So, yeah, like his father, Robert's working hard in Enchanté. He's establishing traditions. Good on him. And he's a bit of a beast. <laughs> beast in the bed. 
He's a sexy beast. So yeah, that is Robert. What would we like to give him for 110? Okay, so he's going to definitely get a point for a miracle, because, you know, he doesn't love that. Yeah. Points for Epithet. Mm-hmm. Points for just being, seems like a, like, you know, like, I can imagine being friends with him. Like, I don't think it'd be that bad. Yeah. Uh, like, some of them are like, eh, I don't want to be friends with you. He might, yeah, I'd hang out with I think he's good. I'm really liking him. Like, except for maybe like he's, he's got an excellent image. He really uh, does. He's got a lot of chroniclers being very positive about him. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, not it's really... not just Elgor. It's 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 a number of them. But yeah, it's not really um, negativity. I'm really do. De- I'm really liking him. I don't. I want to give him five or more. Hmm. Being a bit positive in Onshun Dave once. I know. I just, I just, <laughs> I just I don't know. He just seems like a good job, and I think I like a few epithets in a miracle. And a miracle that lasts. Mm. Come on, a lasting miracle. The only people you've given above five in Enchanté have been Fredegund, obviously. Yeah. Um, Charlemagne and Charles the Bald. Wow, I'm really... And and Odo, actually. And God, Odo. I'm real... Damn, I'm harsh. <laughs> Look, to be fair, we haven't had a lot of imagery um, up to now. True. I'm really liking him, though, so... I want to give him above a five. I just like, I like the legacy that he's like left behind. Yeah. Like, Also, this painting in the Musée d'Orsay, it's very famous. It's a very famous painting. Yeah. Um, anyone who's ever studied medieval history has seen this painting. I think I'm going to go with like a five or six. What are you thinking? Well, I gave Hugh Capet a six, so I'm thinking maybe a seven. What did um, I give Hugh Capet? That's, that's me. You gave him a 4.5. We, we were quite, there was quite a disc- discrepancy with Hugh Cafe. Um, yeah. Because I think you were less impressed by the actual images. Yeah. Um, I'm more impressed. Whereas I was more thinking about the legacy aspect. Yeah. I think I'll go with six. I'm going to go with six. Six? Like, All yeah, right. I'm really liking him. Oh. And there's oh. legacy. And I love a miracle, Okay. I'm a miracle, and you know me, I'm a sucker for epithets. And he is more than one. I think, I think that's an excellent choice. All right. So that is a 13 for Enchanté for Robert II. That puts him in second place in Enchanté after Dang. Charlemagne. Woo. Yeah. Who, of course, got 20. <laughs> so you literally can't beat Charlemagne in this yeah. round. But you can try. Uh, <laughs> on guard. So on guard. So how good was Robert at consolidating and expanding his personal power? So Robert, obviously, he has a tricky time because he's in this period once again where the king has very limited control yeah. outside of Paris and Orléans. Yeah. That being said, he does really well at oh, expanding good. that territory. Good. So, so Robert's capabilities have often been overshadowed because yeah. he's being compared to figures like Charlemagne. And anyone who's compared against Charlemagne, come on. But he's operating in a very different context. Yeah. In Charlemagne's period, there was room for big invasions and expansions. Yeah. But now the, like, borderlines have kind of been set. More. Yeah. And Robert yeah. is surrounded by fellow Christians with very similar values that he has much more interest in getting along with than with in just steamrolling. Yeah. So it's not that he couldn't invade people and burn everything down. He just chose down. not to. It's just that- that would have been counterproductive. Yeah. <laughs> you know. He was being um, wise, like his epithet. 
Yeah. So Robert II, like Hugh Capet, uh, largely collaborated with the local clergy to peacefully unite the lords of France under him. But he also wasn't afraid to pull out his sword when Ooh. necessary. And that's Good. not a euphemism. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Perhaps his greatest achievement uh, in terms of warfare was the doubling of the size of the royal domain when he successfully took Burgundy with help from the Normans in 1003. Woo! Yeah, and then he later, um, so 20 years later, gave it away to Robert Jr. Yeah, but still he part had that of land it. to give away. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's still, yeah, still part of it. Uh, the last person who had Burgundy, if you remember, Hugh the Great at the end of his life was in control of Burgundy. Oh, yeah. As well as, you know, Paris Orléans. Um, then it got split between his two sons, Hugh Capet, who got Paris and Orléans. Yeah. And um, Odo Henry, who got oh, Burgundy. Yeah. Also known as Henry I of Burgundy. Odo Henry failed to have heirs. He only had an illegitimate son. So uh, he died, but it, but it was not as simple as it just going to the next male relative, who yeah. would have been Robert. Um, because... Odo Henry got very close to his stepson, oh. um, whose name was Otto William. Oh, okay. And uh, he bequeathed it to Otto William. Hmm. Um, Otto William, being a member of the House of Ivrea, oh yeah, who we have seen before, yeah. So this was uh, this was Rosala's family, yeah. And obviously, not good if Otto William gets. Burgundy, since uh, yeah. <laughs> Robert II has has pissed off that family. And also, Otto William is the Count of Burgundy. Ooh. So, do you remember that there are, like, three Burgundies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's <laughs> upper Burgundy, So, there's the king. Well, it's not so much an upper Burgundy, lower Burgundy thing, uh, because upper Burgundy and lower Burgundy have actually been united into the kingdom of Burgundy. Okay, and then there's what? Burgundy. But that is separate from the County of Burgundy and the Duchy of Burgundy. Is there Burgundia anywhere? No. Well, they're all Burgundia. That's the Latin name for it. In French, it's called Bourgogne. Like, you know, that's where beef bourguignon comes yeah, from. Yeah, I thought when you um, said that, I was like, yeah. did he say food? <laughs> it's all food. Uh, <laughs> every really place is. name in France is food. Yeah. But, okay, so so let's break it down. So uh, the Duchy of Burgundy is the part of Burgundy in France. Okay. Um, and this is what is called Burgundy today. So it's uh, Dijon, Saint, uh, those sorts of cities. It's bad that every time someone says Dijon, I just think the mustard. <laughs> well, no, because that's, you know, that's how I know. we associate it. It's fine. Again, um, food. That's the Duchy of Burgundy. That's in France. Yeah. Okay. So whenever I yeah. say Duke of Burgundy, he's French. Okay. And from this point on, the Duke of Burgundy is a, is a Capetian. It, yeah. It's like a branch of the Capetians. Yeah. So- then we've got the County of Burgundy, which is a bit more complicated. Okay. It's also called Franche-Comté, and it's in the Holy Roman Empire. It's across oh. the border. Oh. Yes. So they're not nearby? They're not nearby. They are ethnically French, sort of, I guess. It's very, you know, iffy yeah. what French means in this period. But they are part of the empire. Yeah. Just across the border. It's sort of half in France, half in Germany today. Oh, okay. If we want to put it that way. So, that's the County of Burgundy. The Kingdom of Burgundy is where Constance of Arles comes from. Okay. We could also call it the Kingdom of Arles, which I've sort of just been calling it. Yeah. And that's that's ruled by the the Welfs. Yeah. 
and also kind of the Bosonids. They kind of switch back and forth. And that kingdom won't exist for much longer. Actually, I think it'll be split into the Duchy of Provence and the Duchy of Savoy. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, which is kind of Switzerlandish, but um, yeah. that's another tangent. So yeah, Count of Burgundy is trying to become Duke of Burgundy, cross over the border, basically. Mm. Robert comes in, puts a stop to that, yeah, conquers like, Burgundy. I'm having none of that. That's the simple, <laughs> that's the simplest way to put it. The local lords in Burgundy are very anti-Robert. They they put up a fight. Huh. It's a bit of a struggle to get it um, under royal control. It takes about a decade until oh. he finally gains control over the uh, city of Dijon, which is the capital. Mm-hmm. So now can enjoy some mustard. Yeah, but he does it. He he accomplishes it. Yay! Also, regarding the church. Yeah. Um, another thing that's happening in Burgundy is the Cluniac reforms, or at least it starts in Burgundy, because the Abbey of Cluny is in Burgundy. Yeah, who worshipped George Cluny. Worship George Cluny. If you remember from last episode, this was led by Odolo mm-hmm. of Cluny, and he was a very powerful abbot who was around for a very long time and was an important advisor to the king. This continues, of course, in Robert's reign, and part mm. of one of the aims of the Cluniac uh, monasteries because it becomes a network of monasteries. Yeah. That really expect- it's like a it becomes a chain basically. Oh, yeah, like it becomes a, a franchise. Franciscan, Fran- Franciscan Similar, thing. yeah, yeah. I believe they're sort of a subset of the Benedictine. Oh, I might okay. be I might be very wrong about that, but I think mm, maybe Someone they're not will entirely us. their own order, but they are in, they are in movement. Okay. It's also called the Cluniac Revival. Oh, okay. Um, but one of the focuses of this movement, which is not so good for on guard, mm. is they're very into the church being in charge of their own stuff, which is separate uh, from the secular authority. Uh, so, you know, no more kings being abbots. Uh, yeah, no more, no more laymen. No more lay abbots. Yeah. Also, no more people passing down uh, church land through inheritance. Oh. This is a big thing. Like, in yeah. some areas, you'd have bishops who made their sons bishops like (laughs) is there no more uh, having kids yeah no more clergy marrying that's been a thing that sometimes happens no more hanky panky the idea was to bring the church more under the authority of the pope than the king and because the pope was so far away this generally just meant that the church was more autonomous uh, locally (laughs) yeah 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 we're seeing some decentralization with the church as well as decentralization with the nobles mm. happening under Robert's reign, which is not necessarily good for on guard. Yeah. But of course we have to balance that with the fact that Robert is expanding the Royal domain. True. He also retains a good deal of authority outside his domain, um, which is not just symbolic. He lent troops to support vassals against rebellions from lower mm. vassals. Um, for example, he supported Aquitaine in a civil war against the Viscount of Bourges, which won him a lot of support in yeah. the South. Good. And he is considered the early Capetian to have been most active in southern France. Yeah. Remember, his father had merely promised to go down uh, and help yeah, Barcelona. And then, yeah. Yeah. Um, Robert is actually doing stuff in the south. Ooh, he's actually visiting. Yeah. This carried through in peacetime as well. Robert was intent on visiting every part of his kingdom Good. and solving local disputes wherever he went. So he's kind of like a traveling judge, I guess. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, a king was like, a king was a judge, a king yeah, was a, true. A, 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 an official, a king was a everything. Yeah. All rolled into one. A general, one. yeah. All rolled into one. This helped spread around sort of love for the king among the population, because yeah. of course, wherever good. he goes, he's like 
scattering coins, healing people with scrofula, all along the way. This is very good for the authority of the king. Very good for those suffering from scrofula. Yeah. There are a couple chroniclers who do describe Robert as a slow imbecile. Uh, (laughs) Mainly, not necessarily, like, intellectually, because he's known to be very educated, but more in connection to his, um, he's too merciful. Um, And he he has a lack of uh, guile and cunning. So he gets walked over by his wife. Yeah, his wives have the cunning. And by certain nobles, his cunning nobles. He was also much more into slaps on the wrist, followed by pardons, rather than harsh punishments. Yeah. Although this really only applies to if you're a Christian, which we'll get into in Foulet Vu. Okay. But yeah, on the one hand, you could say it's very humanitarian, so it's good for Foulet Vu. But on the other hand, this is the on guard category. Yeah. And he is letting people get away with murder. Sometimes yeah. literally. So. That is my war. Um, funnily enough, it uh, it was Queen Constance who was very much more into punishing people. And we'll get more into this in Ulala. Cool. Which is an interesting reversal of the gender roles of king and queen. Mm. Because we've discussed before, the king is meant to be like bad the cop. Hard. The queen is meant to be good cop. Yeah. It's very much the other way around in this reign. I like that. It's easy to like, in a, from a modern sort of feminist standpoint. Yeah. But from the perspective of people at the time, it was considered a sort of perversion of the proper role of the <laughs> queen and the king. Ooh. So it's interesting how we see that differently now. Yeah, true. Um, now that gender roles are a bit more flexible. Yeah. But yeah, Robert also made some important uh, diplomatic moves when it came to securing his territory. Um, he made peace with, well, he maintained peace with the emperor. Um, Yay! In in 1023, he met Emperor Henry II on the frontier. And this meeting actually marks the end of French claims to any part of the empire and an end of the empire's claims on any part of France. So they both basically agree we are now definitely separate countries. Oh, that's a good legacy thing. Yeah. Both sides had a lot of fish to fry. Yeah. Um, The... This is sort of the end of the Ottonian period. So it's the end of the golden age of the Holy Roman Empire. So they're going to go downhill after this point. Um, So, yeah, both have enough fish to fight. And and this, along with the Treaty of Verdun back in the 800s, when West Francia and East Francia become a thing, this is considered another defining moment in separating out France and Germany. Oh, cool. Though, of course, we still have... A very much a, a grey area there. Yeah. Where Lotharingia is, which to this day is, like, hard to define as French or German. Yeah. Um, hence why countries like Luxembourg exist. Yeah. Um, so, um, I think this treaty with the Emperor is good for both Ongard and Volivu. Yeah. So, I, I think it should count for both. Because um, while it's not Robert winning some great international war... It's Robert ensuring that there's external yeah. peace that, so that he can focus on the Winning internal chaos that's going on. diplomatically. Yeah. And you'll be very pleased to know that a couple of years later in 1025, there was a cry from the Lotharingian nobility yeah. for Robert II to come and liberate them from the emperors. So they were like, hey, come va- invade Lotharingia. It always goes well. <laughs> and um, he Robert- he leaves them unread. He ignores them. Oh, yeah. Finally, someone yeah. ignores that white whale. Yeah. So, he's, he's, he's true to his word. He's smart. He doesn't pursue the white whale. 
Um, I'm so glad the Capetians don't give a crap about Lotharingia. What if it was a test by the emperor? Maybe, maybe he's like, I'll harass these Lotharingians and see what see what happens. Or see secretly get the, them to message be like, me. help me, and see if he upholds it. <laughs> Look, I don't know if uh, that, that could be your conspiracy theory, sure. Yeah. <laughs> it was an inside job. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so that's on guard. That's all I have for on guard. So what do you think? We'll give him. It's not spectacular. Yeah. You know, until we start to get into the, like, colonial period, which is a long way off, France will not have any major conquests. Yeah. So so we're going to have to start shifting our idea of what Battle makes a good on guard score in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Because in the Middle Ages, it's no longer about simple territorial expansion. Yeah. And we discussed this a little bit with Rutger. Yeah. About how we'd have to adjust this. We've got to look at it more diplomatically as well, how they can... But the the fact that we do have expansion of the royal domain is really good. Yeah. So we do actually have territorial expansion yeah. it, it, within this new context. Yeah. In consideration with the new context, I'm thinking, like, middling score. I think it's a... I think because it expands and because Robert is an improvement from Hugh Capet, it's got to be above five for me. I was thinking exactly on five for me. Yeah. Because in my mind... Five is keeping things stable. Six is improving things slightly. Mm. And then, like, eight is improving things a lot. And, like, ten is Charlemagne. (laughs) So, yeah. What do you think? Um, I'll do 5.5. Super tempted to go, like, six or seven. Okay, then do that. That's what you want. I'm, like, looking at other people sort of trying to compare. Stop comparing. No, comparing is good in the scores. Oh, no, but we've got to just change our views. Okay, look, hear me out. You gave Odo an 8, and I gave yeah. him 7.5 in on guard. Yeah. So I think Robert should at least approach that score. Because Odo didn't do any territorial expansion. Odo was all about consolidating power within the kingdom. True. Robert's doing the same thing, and I would argue does it better, better than yeah. Odo. But I can't give a I can't give a nine, so I'll move it up to seven. Now that I've looked, at, now that I've seen Odo's score, I'm like, can we do an eight? Uh, <laughs> I'm really pushing um, it to seven. We were so generous to Odo, to be honest. I loved um, Odo, and he became king through his own. He did thing. actually. Yeah, you're right. Robert had a much easier path to becoming king. Okay, I will go seven as well. We'll both. Okay, do then seven. I want to go down to six point five. <laughs> how dare you how dare you do this to me how dare you play with my heart like that sorry fine i'll do 7.5 fine you do that i'm sticking with 6.5 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right so that is a 14 for on guard which Yay. i believe puts him in one two three oh it puts him equal to charles the bald mm. that's nice He's in about fifth or sixth place. You know. Oh, okay. Anyway, moving on to voulez-vous. Voulez-vous. Um, mm-hmm. Do you want to be a subject? Oh, um. We'll, we'll get into it. We'll get into it. There is a lot of meat on this bone. Okay, uh, let's so see we this. Will, let's gnaw yeah, at we'll it. we'll be discussing this a bit. This might be a two-hour episode because there's just so much to get into. But um, so two things that were going on in the background of Robert the Second's reign. Obviously, we've got the Cluniac reforms, which is not as good for on guard, but pretty good for. Voulez-vous. Yeah. We've touched on that. And uh, we don't have time to get into the, you know, ins and outs of the Cluniac movement. But 
just Google it. Uh, That's what Google's There's for. a lot out there on it. Um, we don't have to get into it. This is a podcast about kings, not about monks. So go find that. Is there a podcast about monks? Probably. Probably. I think there's some history of Christianity podcasts you can get into. There's so some monk do that. history. <laughs> yeah. So we've also got a concurrent movement called the Peace of God movement, which was, it was covered recently by the French History Podcast. Um, our friend Gary. Um, so I encourage you all to check that episode out. It's only like 20 minutes. So the peace of God, uh, this doesn't necessarily reflect well on Robert or the early Capetians. Yeah. It was actually a reaction to the so-called French anarchy that was seeing all of these local lords in a constant state of war, basically. Yeah. Uh, as we've hinted at like time and time again on this podcast, caught in the middle of all of these conflicts are all of the women, children, clergy, pilgrims. Mm. Merchants, peasants, yeah. all those people. And uh, this is obviously nothing new, but royal and civil authority has now reached such a low point throughout the kingdom that there is this reaction and the church is, is spearheading this sort of uh, what is really the first major uh, peace movement in, mm. uh, in European history. So this is called the Peace of God or the Pax Dei. Um, it's basically the development of like an honor system where the strong, so like knights and lords, yeah. were obliged to protect the weak. So women, clergy, pilgrims, merchants, yeah. other civilians, very tied in with the, Christ- the whole Christian thing of blessed are the meek yeah. sort of thing. Um, it's been speculated that a lot of the impetus to get in line and behave better had to do with the turn of the millennium and fears of the apocalypse. Oh, yeah. That's what Encyclopedia Britannica said, but Encyclopedia Britannica is often wrong, as I've said before, Um, uh, because this is a bit of a misconception. Um, As we discussed, the hysteria at the time was not earth-shattering. Yeah. And also, the movement persisted long after fears of the apocalypse would have passed. Yeah. So, yeah. Shut up, Britannica. Um, (laughs) So, the peace of God... uh, Actually, Wikipedia is a lot better than Britannica, if you want to, like... Learn about medieval history, just so you know. Um, so the peace of God, uh, well, it doesn't have much to do with Robert II's actions. In mm. fact, it's kind of a bad reflection on his context. Um, but uh, it's going to be really influential in dictating the moral structure of feudal society going forward. Yeah. Okay. Including the ethos behind what would develop into chivalry. Mm. And ironically, the Crusades. Uh, because the idea is that you make war not on fellow Christians, but solely on the infidel. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Those infidels. And yeah, we'll see this play into the First Crusade, which will happen in a couple kings from now. Woo. Yeah. I mean, not woo. But... Yeah, not woo for them. <laughs> not woo if you're a Muslim or a Jew or, just... or a heretic. Or... Yeah. <laughs> a but... lot of people died. Not um, really woo if you're a Christian either. No, yeah, look, not woo for Ed. L- lack of woo is all right, yeah, I think, when it comes to the Crusades. But, more um, but they, like, they are very, they are cool very woo for the interesting, woo for the interestingness. I was going to go woo for the name. Sounds like Crusade. Yeah, I like that word. It basically just means cross war. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's just a powerful Cro- from, sounding From word. Latin crooks meaning cross. Okay, so... Blah, 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 blah. So, yeah, we have the first widespread anti-war movement in European history. The Beatles are playing, you know. 
Yeah, all, yeah, it's very 1960s. Um, although all it does is lead to the Crusades. So, <laughs> so well done, Chris. Well done, Christianity. You've done it again. <laughs> woo. Um, so that's a lot of the context behind how France is going in Robert's reign. Uh, there's a lot of violence and chaos, but there's also this moral reckoning that's happening. A lot of people trying to make things better. Yeah. So now let's actually talk about Robert himself. Yeah. So even uh, as a junior king, according to Richer, quote, Robert was remarkable for his great industry and cleverness, so much that he not only excelled in military affairs, but was also renowned for his knowledge of scripture and canon law. In addition, he devoted himself to the study of the liberal arts and participated in Episcopal synods, deliberating and passing judgment in ecclesiastical cases alongside the bishops. So there we go. That's a good... And that's early. That's Mm. when he's junior king. Yeah. He's already getting really involved. Good Um, on him. So yeah, promising start for Robert, and he seems to continue in this vein. um, In spite of of being a hot mess in his personal life. (laughs) um, He separates it. Publicly, yeah. So yeah, we'll have to take points off for those marital blunders, I think, in this round, because... They did exacerbate, in particular, the feud between Anjou and Blois, which was causing a lot of this chaos. Because mm. um, it was drawing in lords from all corners of France because of all the alliances yeah. that they made, which we got into in the Patreon episode. Mm. Go listen to that. Um, hint, hint. Uh, so, yeah, Robert also kept oscillating between whether to support Anjou or Blois. Yeah. He's like, uh, my queen or my love. Yeah, and- Exactly, basically. Um, and um, we can see this as sort of a series of calculated moves because he doesn't want one to get too strong. Yeah. So if one's getting too strong, he turns and supports the other. Uh. Um, so it's kind of maintaining the balance of power. Yeah. Um, because the thing about the royal domain, Anjou and Blois, they're all, they all have about the same amount of land and power. Yeah. So if you don't want one, if one of them conquers the other, it tips the balance. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. Um, but yeah, throughout these conflicts, both factions continued in their deference to the king. So we yeah. never get a situation where like it's the Lords rebelling. Someone's direct Well Could there was a bit of this like- in Hugh Cafe's reign, but in Robert's reign, there's never like a direct confrontation between, say, Bois and the King. It's yeah. it's always through Allies yeah. of the king. It's it's more like proxy wars than yeah. full on wars. Yeah. Um. So that's all right. Um. But yeah, throughout his reign, as we discussed, Robert showed a lot of genuine concern for both the physical and spiritual well being of his people. Yeah. Uh, there's an instance in 1027 when it starts raining blood. Um. Cute. And uh, Robert brings together his bishops to sort of look into it. <laughs> um. It does happen sometimes, in, especially in Southern Europe, you'll get some red rain um, mm. because it's actually it's actually dust from the Sahara Desert that's carried mm. across the sea and it mingles the rain, looks mm. kind of orangey. Yeah. So that could have been what happened because yeah. um, it does apparently happen occasionally. Mm. Uh, no apocalypse going, ah! Like when we then yeah, dust well, this storm. Yeah, well, this was like, this was shortly before 1033. Oh God, so do you remember like, that dust storm? Oh, yeah. Sydney was hit by a big dust storm once and everything yeah, was orange. Like, yeah, I woke up and it was like bright, like deep red. And I was like, oh, my God, it's the end of the world. 
Yeah, which is of course the the the, the orange sand thing. from the Australian desert coming to the coast. And it's, it's a reasonable thing to think here. when you see bloody red sky uh, in the morning. Yeah, it's yeah. My mum came in, opened the curtain. This was when I was a teenager. My mum came in, opened the curtains, and she was like, "The world's ending." <laughs> well, I went to my mum's room and not, and was like, "Mom, what's going on?" And she's like, "Oh, I already looked it up. It's like dust. I'll go back to. I'm going back to bed." I was like, "Okay." My mum was a bit more, um, had a bit more flair. <laughs> Mine was too sleepy. She had, 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 had her coffee. Yeah. Okay, so um, back to you, Robert. Uh, so Robert's uh, biographer and chaplain, Elgo, as we've discussed, um, he also notes an instance when Elgo himself was crossing mm-hmm. the Seine in rather treacherous conditions, and Robert was waiting for him on the opposite shore. And uh, Robert was apparently in tears at the thought Aww. of his friend in danger. Aww. So he's a sensitive a man, is Robert. Yeah, he values his friends. Um, and in everyday dealings, uh, he was generally considered a good egg. Uh, he he was generally very polite and friendly to people. Um, and he maintained the air of modesty that was characteristic of all of the Robertians before mm. him. Um and again, this sort of contrasts him to the more opulent and prideful Constance. Yeah. There's actually one story where Constance gives Robert a fabulous gift. It's a a lance encrusted with silver trim. Ooh. And Robert then secretly goes to a poor man and has the man take the silver off and keep it for himself. Aww. And he's like, shh, don't tell the queen. I'm in trouble. <laughs> And then the queen sees the lance again and is horrified. She's like, what happened to the lance? And Robert just plays dumb. And he's like, I don't know. It got stolen. <laughs> uh, so he, and then he sort of winked to the camera. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, we know, but she doesn't. There's a lot of these kinds of stories, which we don't have time to get into. Um, yeah. Where like the king is being all like wise and merciful. And the queen's just being a bitch. <laughs> so, yeah. Um. So, Robert's kindness, however, did not extend to non-Christians. Oh. Uh, so, the peace of God did not extend to Jews and heretics, and Robert was merciless when it came to their persecution. Oh. Um, possibly more than any king we've seen so far. Oh. The Carolingians were actually perfect angels towards the Jewish people in comparison to the Capetians. Ooh. Yeah, so we've got a downturn in uh, the treatment of Jews, which is fun. And um, there are some very nasty things that that chroniclers like Rodolphus Glaber say about the Jewish people in this period and how great it is that Robert is tightening restrictions on them um, as, quote, vengeance against their, quote, arrogance, envy, and insolence. Um, Including one instance when a Jewish man in Orléans was accused of conspiring with Muslims against Christian pilgrims to the Holy Land and was condemned to be burned alive by Ooh. Robert himself. Ooh. Yes. Um, Let me down here, Robert. I know. Uh, this is also the first whiff we've had of the danger of heresy, yeah. uh, which is becoming a focus of the church now that it's starting to tighten its authority. We've got to start doing some witchiness. Yeah, not quite witches yet. We're not quite in the witch hysteria period. Damn. That's more of a later Middle Ages thing, sort of after the Black Death. Can't wait to witches um, fear. Currently, though, it, the, because the church is doing this whole thing of, like, tightening its authority and, like, um, making more rules, we've seen that with marriage, 
They're also doing it with all church doctrine in general. So if you're straying from the path of what the Pope says is the correct path, Catholicism, yeah, then you're evil is bad. It's heresy. You're evil. You deserve to die. So um, what Christians of this time called heresy, so like variations from the single version of Christianity, um, had been going on for ages. Yeah. Um, every local area had their own saints, their own customs. Yeah. Even some leftover pagan practices mixed in with the Christian faith. Woo. And now we're seeing Robert, in conjunction with the church, really cracking down on that and mm. making things more uniform. Which is um, good and bad. I'd say it's mostly bad. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean good in terms hand, of like maybe, the uniform, making it more like uh, one thing. I guess it makes uh, so like, administration like, a bit smoother. Yeah, like in terms uniform. of like, you know, there's just one law kind of thing. Not but also, I think diversity is very good. It, it's yeah. it's it's making things less diverse. It's it's um, yeah making things more limited. Yeah. Um, like I'd be burned at the stake if I was in that time. Oh, let's be honest, Eliza. If you were living through all the events of this podcast, you'd you'd have been dead in like Clovis the first reign. But okay, I <laughs> we feel as like though I would be really good at court life. Really? Yeah, I just have a feeling that I really vibe and become really you, evil and be like Cersei Lannister. You'd have to. Oh yeah, okay. You'd be like a Fredegund or a Constance. Yeah, I would literally be that. <laughs> okay. Well, um. So yeah, we've got heretics. Um. We've we've got a significant number of burnings that happen, mm. particularly around Orléans, which suggests that Robert himself was responsible for them because he Orléans was very much his center yeah. of power. No love to good burning. So, yeah, he's personally starting lots of burnings. Of course, this is often targeted at minorities and women. Of course. And also the Queen is very much a participant in this violence as well, as we'll see in Ulala. But what shall we rate Robert II in Voulez-Vous? Okay, if we're ignoring the shiz of heresy and Judaism. Look, it is tricky because if we are considering his subjects to all be Christian... He's being very good to his subjects. Yeah. However, there uh, are also Jews in the kingdom. And France is more diverse than we maybe think of it as. Yeah. It definitely had lots of different types of people, and they were definitely under fire in this period. Yeah, he's going to lose a few points of that. Yes, but you, if you were in the 90% of people... Great. You were, things were improving, but it wasn't necessarily Robert improving things. The Peace mm. of God movement was not Robert. Yeah. Um, the Cluniac reform was not Robert. Yeah. He was very nice personally, but we don't see him, like, you know, creating a welfare system or anything. He's just yeah. going around being nice. Yeah. Um, there's no, like, systemic changes that he's True. creating. So I think it's going to be a good score, but not, not, a, a, not great. a great score. Yeah. He loses a lot for the burning. He's really setting a trend there. Yeah, it's not a good trend. But in terms of, like, living there, in terms of there's not being any, like, major wars. Just lots of little wars. <laughs> yeah, but, like, if you're a peasant, you're not going to be most likely as affected opposed to those full giant scale civil war battles, like, you know. It will get worse next reign. Mm. And I'm thinking, like, three or four. I think because he's personally quite good, I... I'm considering approaching five. Okay. Um, because he's he's got a good character. There's a lot of n- nice stories of him being nice to yeah, people. Yeah, there is. But giving that silver fully box. loses five points for <laughs> all of the burning chaos and the persecution. 
for me. So I'm going to give it five, I think. I'm going to go with four. So that's a nine for Voulez-Vous. Robert second. Bit more harsh in this round, I think. Mm. So let's move on to Ooh La La. Mm -hmm. The moment you've been waiting for. Yay! Ooh La La. How scandalous was Robert II? Well, we've got all the marital problems, so that's already, like, at least two points. Yeah, and basically having, like, polygamous, like, thing, if you think about it, he was technically still married, whilst also getting married to someone else, so, like, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And not, I mean, we've seen lots of mistresses before, but this is something, someone who's actively trying to marry. (laughs) And, like, trying to get a divorce. Yeah, yeah, it's very much an Anne Boleyn situation. This is the first king we reviewed who's gotten excommunicated as well. Woo! So that's, like, at least a couple points as well. Yeah, it's going to get some points. See, it's, that's tied into the marital struggles, obviously, but, you know, it's uh, worth its own couple yeah. points, I think. Yeah. And despite uh, his pious reputation, Robert has a lot of blunders with the church as well. Mm. He is a penitential king. He always sort of admits his mistakes and tries to make up for them, oh. uh, ask forgiveness. And he sort of tries to be better at each time. And by the end, he's very much a figure of stability by the end of his reign. Yeah. Whereas his sons are the ones causing chaos. Mm-hmm. So things improve over time with his character. Yeah. He gets less ooh over time. But all of that early stuff is, is very juicy. juicy. Yeah. But yes, let's get into some of these blunders. So um, during his invasion of Burgundy, Robert is a little too enthusiastic. <laughs> um, his troops did an oopsie-daisy and uh, they looted and burned down the Abbey of Saint-Germain in Auxerre. Oh. One of the biggest abbeys in Germany. So that, uh, not Germany, in, in Burgundy. So that's not good. Constance, of course, is a big point towards his school, <laughs> I think. She's portrayed as pretty much a pretty nasty piece of work, and uh, he enables a lot of her nastiness, yeah. um, according to the chroniclers, who are very sexist, at least. Uh, so I, I, I didn't mention it in the main narrative, but at one point in 1022, yeah. her confessor, Stephen, yeah. so like the priest that she confessed yeah, her sins yeah. to, um, he was rather ironically arrested and tried for his own sinful acts. Um, apparently, he he was participating in a circle of heretics who, uh, let's say, had a little too much fun. Yeah. Mention of orgies and devil worship. Oh. Yeah. Damn, too <laughs> so that's much fun, that's there. for sure. At the trial, uh, the queen was whipped up into a fury upon hearing all the evidence against Stephen. Stephen had besmirched... Her name. The reputation of her household. Yeah, yeah. So she got so mad that she took her royal scepter. And hit him over the head with it. She whacked him in the face (laughs) and took out one of his eyes. Oh, sucks for the eye, but oh my God, that is hilarious to think. And this was just after Stephen had been sentenced to be burned at the stake. Oh. Um, So it's really adding insult to injury there. Yeah, Um, it's So yeah, Constance, she really hit it out of the park. No no pun intended. (laughs) Uh, with her level of scandal. <laughs> well, she'd be really good batter. I do find it quite funny that, that uh, the queen is just walking around with the scepter. And whacking like, people with it. destroy you with it any moment. Yeah, like, everyone's like, she's got the scepter out today. Definitely, Come like, sh- she's definitely giving Fredegon vibes with all of the, the plotting and the yeah. direct violence. Like, Fredegon was the only queen we'd really ever seen that actually hit people mm. in the in the historical record. Yeah. At one point, she, like, whips someone with a belt. Um, a metal belt as well. Ooh. Oh, and that was Leonard. Remember Leonard? Oh, yeah, Leonard. <laughs> this is going way back. <laughs> Good old Leonard. So, yeah, so that is uh, Constance, who's the main 
uh, Ulala contributor, I think. Mm. In, uh, this as well as Bertha. Bertha's also quite yeah. strong as well. And Rosala as well. All, all the drum with Rosala. Mainly, it's mainly the wives who, who are the source of the Ola, which is Yeah, it makes it more interesting. So what do we want to give for Ola? We're going to go two points of excommunication, like, you know, constant excommunication. A few more points for the wife, or the debacle of basically polygamy. The one where he tried to get the divorce by going out of mm-hmm. Rome. I do like that little story there. Yeah, and then he, like, basically throws Bertha over and she dies yeah, immediately so, after. Yeah, he literally killed someone so they died of a broken heart. First king to get excommunicated. This it's is pretty big. big. And this is setting this is setting a precedent. I think you're, like, seven. Because three for excommunication. Because, you know, it's a biggie. Mm-hmm. Um, three for one for each wife. <laughs> yeah. So that gives it six. And then another one just for... General shenanigans. Yeah. Because he's not personally, like, a horrible, crazy person. Yeah. I think seven is also the the highest I'll go. Yeah. We had a bit of murder, like, that he did. If we both give him seven, that still puts him in second place in All Allah. Woo! After Clotha the first, he got an eight from each of us for killing all his nephews. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, are we sticking with that? Yeah. Does, does that sound good? Yeah. Putting him in second place? Yeah. He's he's leapfrogged over Charles the Fat and Charles the Simple. Yep. Um, Come on, excommunication. That's a big points. damn deal. It is a big damn deal. So that is in 14 for Ulala. Woo! Now let's get into Voulez-vous. No, not Voulez-vous. Now let's get into La Vie on Throne. <laughs> yep. La Vie on Robert II reigned from the death of Hugh Capet on the 24th of October, 996, mm-hmm. to his own death on the 20th of July, 1031. 35 years. Yes. Well, it's 34 years, 7 months, and 27 days. Oh, damn. It's a long reign. It gives him 6.5 points Ooh. for his reign. And this is the longest reign we've had since Charles the Bald, mm. which was nearly 200 years earlier. So that's pretty great. Yeah. So let's get into how many surviving legitimate yeah. children Robert II had. So his marital issues dominated his younger years, but once the other wives were dead um, and he was just focusing on Constance. He had a fertile myrtle. We have a fertile myrtle on our hands. So first, uh, the first child, we've got Hedwig. Yeah. Um, she married Reynold, the Burgundian Count of Nevers. Okay. And she lived to 1063, so she's long outliving her father. Then we've got Hugh Magnus, who became junior king and would but, have become King Hugh II, but sadly died. So do we not count him? Not counting him because he did not outlive his father. Too bad. Then we've got Henry I of France, who will be our next king. Oh, Henry. Who obviously, obviously does outlive. Um, yes, Henri. I'm going to call him Henry because Henri is, is, is difficult. And <laughs> I should also probably note, I am going with the English names for Easiness. people in the Middle Ages. Yeah, just for ease. Um, I think until we get up to, like, the 17th century, like, post-Renaissance, then I'll start using French names and titles. Because that's just what history books do. Yeah. I mean, they didn't speak French in this period anyway. It was old French. So, it's like, doesn't even matter what language you use. Because it's all going to be the wrong language anyway. Um, So, okay. After Henry, we've got the fourth child, Adela. Okay. And she's very important. Uh, She is the longest surviving sibling. She lived to the age of 70. Damn. And she was briefly married to Duke Richard III of Normandy, um, William the Conqueror's uncle who died young. 
But then she afterwards married Count Baldwin V of Flanders. Oh, yeah. He's the grandson of Rosal of Italy. Oh. So remember, her son was the count. <laughs> this is her grandson. Yeah. <laughs> that uh, he's marrying. So, um, that she's marrying, sorry. Um, so, Adela then thus becomes the mother of our friend from Rex Factor, Matilda of Flanders. Woo. We're getting so close to the William the Conqueror time. So she's got a connection to both William the Conqueror and Matilda Flanders. Cool. Which is really interesting. Yeah. Connections. Gotta love them. Oh, anyone who hasn't listened to our Patreon episode, the the whole thing is just like connections. Like everyone's marrying each other and like we're we're finding so many connections to like English history. It's crazy. Yeah, it's cool. Um, Because spoiler alert, the English monarchs from 1066 were all French. (laughs) There's connections. Anyway, so fifth child. We're still on the children. Uh, (laughs) We've got Robert, Robert Jr., known as Duke Robert I of Burgundy. Yep. Or Robert the Old, because oh. he lived a long time. Oh, okay. Uh, but not, not as long as, as Adela. Yeah. Um, no, but he was the second oldest living. Um, Robert, the uh, mm-hmm. I of Burgundy, became the founder of the Capetian dynasty's first major cadet branch. Oh. The House of Burgundy. Oh. And he was also, randomly, the ancestor of the first king of Portugal, Afonso the first. Oh. So the House of Burgundy ends up ruling Portugal. Oh. It's a long story. <laughs> so then, sixth child, we have a fourth son, who I didn't mention, uh, who's named Odo. Oh. Um, he doesn't get mentioned at all a whole lot in the sources. Uh, he may have been uh, mentally disabled. Oh. Um, so his parents likely sort of kept him... In a monastery. ...off to the side, um, which is a bit sad. But he did live to his 40s, so he's oh. counted as a child. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's he's counted. So how many children is that? Six, but not um, the one who died. So Six five. minus one, so five. Yeah. I am sad to admit that uh, I flubbed the scores a bit here. Whenever I was calculating this, I overlooked the fact that Hugh Magnus had died before Robert II. So, um, it's going to be, instead of a score of 10.13 for the children, it's actually going to be 8.44, which I guess goes to show the difference that one child uh, makes in the king's score. Um, and we made a big deal out of this because it would have put his Vion Throne score just above Charlemagne's. So it would have made him the biggest scorer in this round. And we had a whole celebration about that. But that is not the case. <laughs> uh, he actually uh, just got just a smidgen under Charlemagne. He didn't quite beat him in this round. Um, so he got 14.9 points, whereas Charlemagne got 15.2. So he's second place in Vion Throne. Uh, so far out of our kings. We are going to have a king very soon who will beat Charlemagne in the Vion Throne score, but alas, that day is not this day. So, yeah. So, that's the scores for Robert. Tally up the Giving scores. Giving a grand total. Diddling. Giving a grand total, and it is indeed a grand total. Mm. It is a total I would describe as grand. <laughs> um, because to that this. is... That is a score of 64.92. I was very excited when we first recorded this because it was 66.6, the number of the beast. Um, but uh, unfortunately, 
because of the Vion Throne miscalculation, it is slightly low at 64.92. But that still puts him about eight points ahead of uh, Charles the Bald, who is in third place now. He's moved from second place to third place. So we now have a new second place after Charlemagne. I forgot to be honest, I didn't expect him to do this well. Did you not think I'd take as strong of a liking to him as I did? Well, I don't know. I don't know. But Robert II is now second place. Woo! Score-wise, of all of our kings. Good on him! Yay! Yeah. He's, I mean, he's not going to beat Charlemagne, because Charlemagne got 80. But (laughs) he's done really well. I know, it's so good. He's just a really good all-rounder, I think. The long reign, the lots of children, and the scandal is really what pushed him over the edge. Yeah. That excommunication. Yeah. I know. every time. So, Robert the Wise, Robert Lesage, uh, it's time to ask the question, is he fascinating enough? Majestic enough? But, oh, I said things in the wrong order. Is he? What do I say? Is he <laughs> fabulous? Is he blah, 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 I mean, the Yes, is, is he all of the things enough to deserve to be spared from the guillotine and go through to the final Battle Royale Championship? Complete with horses. Yeah, what is your, what is your, what is your verdict? Because remember, the, the score doesn't matter. I know, I want to say yes, I like him. You know what? It's been a no-brainer for me, for Robert II. I think he's definitely worthy. If Hugh Capet can get in, he can get in. Yeah. Let's be honest. Yeah. So, he is spared. Commence the fanfare. Obviously, we do not condone burning heretics. Yeah. Or persecuting Jewish people. We are not Nazis. (laughs) that's going to go without saying for all of the kings. But in terms of interestingness, in terms of whether or not we want to revisit him in the tournament, yeah, I think Robert wise. is definitely up there. <laughs> interesting wise, he's he's also not one of the kings that you hear about yeah. constantly. Nobody's really heard of Robert the Wise. Hmm. Um, so now that you have, go out and tell more people about him. <laughs> yeah, tell about Robert and Constance, particularly yeah. Constance. She's pretty good. I think it's going to be hard to judge a lot of these early Capetians because opinions always very divided mm. on them, like whether they're really good or bad. Because like they're they're um, they're either being called boring and ineffectual, or they're being praised for like starting the most powerful dynasty yeah. of all time. Um, so, but I'm glad that we were we were pretty certain yeah. with, with Robert that he deserves it. Um, it's going to be a bit murky some of the mm. next ones but we'll see um so it's time for a bit of a sign off uh we are uh, a couple episodes after this episode we are doing uh what we are calling a rexipod roundtable episode uh this will be our one year anniversary special can't believe we've been doing this for nearly a year it's crazy no time flies i know and, uh, yeah, we will be recording that with the Tudoriferous podcast and the Ranking 76 podcast, which we've previously plugged on this show. And it'll be like a sort of uh, discussion about, you know, what it's like going. being podcasters, how it's been going, what 
we've gotten out of this and interesting stuff about the people that we've come across in our, yeah. um, our forays into history from like three very different periods of time. Yeah, and um, many tangents probably from me. Patreon. Go yes. sign up to our Patreon. Thank you to our new patron, Woo. David. Welcome to the official Angry Mob. Yeah, so go on to patreon.com slash Battle Royale Podcast to support us and get bonus content. And if you want to do a smaller donation, um, mm-hmm. Kofi is also a good place to go. Um, we're yeah, just Battle start Royale. Start funding on, me for that fort. KO-FI Kofi. Yes, help us build yeah. Eliza a castle. That's better yeah. than a husband's castle. My non-existent husband. <laughs> so. Look, she's going through a messy divorce. She uh, she needs it. Yeah, I deserve a bigger castle for God's sake. <laughs> All right. So, oh, I'm like so excited about big scores. Non-mediocre <laughs> kings. I, I can't believe my eyes. Yep. So that's a... That's going to be au revoir from me. And goodbye from me.